This, I, I'm so excited about um, a, a series of about 15 weeks where we get to walk through this gospel together. I have always loved the gospel of Mark. One of the reasons I love it is because it's a short, it's a, it's a short uh, gospel. It's 661 verses. It's a, it's a kind of uh, gospel you could sit down and in an hour you could read from beginning to end. And Mark has a pace. He, he quickly runs us through the events of Jesus' life and, and is a, a masterful writer on top of that. And so Mark is a great gospel. It's a great one for us to digest. And when you read Mark, you're reading a lot of Matthew and a lot of Luke. In fact, all but 31 verses in Mark's gospel is included in Matthew and Luke. And it tells us that likely this was the first gospel written and that when, Mark, uh, when Matthew sat down to write and when Luke sat down to write, they had Mark's gospel there as a guide. And so most all of what you find in Mark's gospel, you find in the other two uh, gospels. And so it's like a, it's a great primer uh, for us as, as gospel studies go. Well, as we look at it, let me do this. I want to read uh, the first bit of, of, of Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at the whole chapter, um, not every word, not every verse, but we'll look at three distinct spots in it. But let me go ahead and begin by reading kind of the opening uh, prologue if you will, of what it is that Mark writes as he sits down. Mark writes this, Mark 1, beginning verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was, was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me, one who is mightier, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Believe. 
in the gospel. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, help us this morning. As we hear these words and as we consider them, we meditate upon them this morning. Father, open our eyes so that we can see clearly. Father, open our ears so that we can hear your word, that we can hear you speaking to us. And that, Father, we would catch a glimpse of the the beauty and the majesty and the authority and the power, the intimacy and the closeness and the realness of your Son, Jesus. We pray all this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and in the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, we call this second book uh, the Gospel of Mark, but actually, if you notice from the very first verse, it's, it's the Gospel of, of Jesus Christ. That's really what the title of this, of this book is. And Mark is, is simply the, the author of the book. He's simply writing down what the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write down, and he's writing it down in the context that he's living in. And the reality is, is he's probably a helper, a servant of the Apostle Peter. And that they're in Rome, and that this is the late 50s or early 60s, and the suffering, the persecution has begun. That he's writing for a generation of people that will see the original followers of Jesus pass from this earth. And not only that, Christianity's entering into a time of persecution and suffering that will last for years and years to come. And so this is who Mark's writing to. Well, what we know about Mark from the New Testament is that his full name is John Mark. His mother is Mary, a widow that likely um, uh, had to, came from money. Mark grew up on the good side of town in Jerusalem. And you find out that that is where the church met to pray and to worship in the very early days. You find all this out from Acts chapter 12. Mark emerges in the New Testament. He's a, he's a minor character. He goes off. He travels with Paul and with Barnabas. He turns out he's Barnabas's nephew or cousin. He assists them on the first missionary journey. He heads off with them at the end of Acts chapter 15 on the second missionary journey, uh, or first missionary journey, accompanies them, goes off for the first event. Then, he, then what he does is he quits the journey. He goes back home to Jerusalem. Mark is a, a young man at that time. The time the second missionary journey comes around in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're deciding where they're going to go and who they're going to take. And Barnabas says, let's take Mark again. And Paul says, no, 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 we're not taking Mark. And the implication is, is that Mark's a deserter. We took him. He had a shot. He failed. There's no place for him. Well, Paul and Barnabas... Despite their friendship, the text says they have a sharp disagreement and they split ways. 
Paul grabs Silas. He goes off for the second missionary journey. Barnabas takes Mark, takes him back to his home in Cyprus, and presumably he begins to nurture and disciple and develop this young Mark. Help him to grow into maturity. We know this because after a number of years, Mark's name begins to show up again in Paul's writings. You find that he's a servant, he's a helper, he's a, in fact, Peter calls him my son Mark. And then at the very, some of the very last words that Paul will write, he writes them to Timothy at the end of 2 Timothy. And he says, Timothy, I hope you can come see me soon. And when you come, bring the parchments and bring me a blanket, blanket and, and oh, by the way, go get Mark and bring him because he's very useful to me in ministry. Mark did mature. Mark became one of the significant leaders of the next generation of believers in his day. And he set about to write the story of who Jesus is, this first gospel written for the church. And, and most believe what he's doing is he's writing down the testimony, the words, the sermons of Peter, who he was accompanying at the time. Like I said, he's writing for a generation for whom the call to follow Jesus came with a great price. Actually, the call to follow Jesus always comes with a great price. There are parts of the world today, right now, that feel the cost of suffering and loss and persecution. All of those related to what it means to follow Jesus. Social costs and relational costs and economic costs and personal costs. But probably the better word here is sacrifice. See, in Mark's gospel, the call to follow Jesus, this, this, this call to discipleship, it, it, by its very nature, is a sacrifice. And the call in Mark's gospel is to believe, to believe in Jesus. It means to, to trust in him and it means to follow him. And, and what you find is that Mark, he's telling the story of Jesus calling to himself disciples, but bidding them, calling them to follow me, Jesus will say. And, and the road that they are to travel with Jesus, this road, this way, this path, this journey. It doesn't lead to where the disciples think it's going to lead. See, if the disciples had been setting the direction, they might have lived a comfortable 40, 50, 60 years. But the reality is we would have no New Testament and we would be without hope and without God. Jesus leads they follow or they don't. 
See, what Mark portrays is that Jesus has authority like no one has ever had authority before in human history. And with that authority comes his power. And people that encounter Jesus over and over and over again in Mark, you know, they're astonished. They are amazed. I mean, just imagine what you could do with authority and power that stopped people dead in their tracks and gathered people to you from all over the place. What would you do with that? If you had that kind of authority... And that kind of power, that when you spoke, people listened, and then they went and told people about you, and people gathered and clamored all over to come and to see you. See, authority and power in their culture, in our culture, in any culture, always translates into privilege and perks. See, authority and power has this Ability to make you keenly aware of yourself and your wants and your desires, and it tends to numb you to the cares and concerns of those around you. I mean, imagine what you could do. Well, the disciples, they did imagine it. They had vivid imaginations. We catch a glimpse in Mark's gospel throughout, we'll see that they have these dreams of, of what life could be following this Jesus What they discover, though, in following Jesus is with all his authority and all his power, he is going to take them to the lowest and darkest and neediest and most despised places, people, and circumstances of their day. He's going to travel the road not of privileges and perks, but a road of suffering, a suffering that leads to death, even, even death on a cross. Let's just say it this way, that that Jesus was leading his disciples in a direction. And that direction was very different from the dreams that the disciples had. My guess is that if we could see our lives kind of unfolded, laid out on a page we might discover that God has plans for us. He has a a will for us. And that His very will for our lives is very different than our dreams. Discipleship is not chasing your dreams and pursuing your desires or creating a better destiny. No, no, no. Discipleship in Mark's gospel is this. Christianity is this, following Jesus wherever he leads. Following Jesus wherever he leads. Incidentally, and then we'll get into the text, I would say there's no way that the gospel of Mark is propaganda. Sometimes you'll read books and they become popular here and there, and they say, oh, this is the difference between the Jesus that really lived, you know, the historical Jesus, and the Jesus of the Bible, or the Jesus that Christianity made up. But, but I tell you, no, there's no way that Mark is that kind of propaganda, because it's not an exaggerated story creating a mythological Jesus 
in hopes that this, you know, subversive group of people could gain followers and overthrow Rome. It's the account of Jesus, the Son of God, who became a man, took on flesh, and entered into a broken and dying world and calls you to follow him where he goes. In fact, what you find is that to follow Jesus is to lose your life. To give it all up. That the entire direction and course and concern and care for your life is radically transformed. It's radically changed. It's not a call to follow Jesus to get what you want. See, that would be propaganda. It's a call to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Well, let's answer three questions, and then we'll pray and go home. Who is Jesus? That's the first question I want to answer. The second is, what what did he come to do? And the third is, how are we? To respond, who is Jesus? We'll look back in verse 1 of Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, if I were to, to give out a test and say, okay, who does Mark think Jesus is? Well, it's easy to tell because from the very first statement, he already tells. Look, I, he's Jesus Christ, which means, further defined, he is the Son of God. And not only that, he gets into verse 2 and verse 3, and he tells us he's the Son of God who was prophesied from the Old Testament. This is not new information. This gospel that I'm telling you is not new. It is a gospel that has been expected. It's been anticipated. It's been promised by God from days of old. And we can go back to the Old Testament and over and over and over again, the Old Testament writers pointed to the promise of God's Messiah, his Christ. And Mark's saying, I know who he is. His name's Jesus. He's the Son of God. Well, he's going to tell us some very earthy and human things so that what we discover from Mark's gospel is this Son of God, this eternal Son of God, is also the one who entered out of eternity into history and put on flesh. He was born in Bethlehem. He had an address in Nazareth. People knew about his family. His dad was a carpenter. They knew his mom and his brothers and his sisters. He was known because he lived, really lived. He had flesh. He had blood. Born as a baby and grew to an adult all the while. Make no mistake. He is the eternal Son of God. The one promised by God. From days past. That's who Jesus is. Well, in announcing Jesus, which is what Mark's doing, Mark's going to announce him, and then God's going to announce him, and then Jesus will announce himself. There'll be more emphasis on Jesus' miracles than on his teaching, although the teaching you find is actually the most important. 
over a third of Mark's gospel is going to focus on the last eight days of Jesus' life, beginning in verse, or chapter 11. Begins with an introduction. He is the Son of God. It's going to end with a confession. There'll be the centurion there standing at the cross where Mark announces in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he's the Son of God. The centurion, the Roman centurion, will stand at the cross and say, truly this man was the Son of God. There's a messenger who's going to prepare a way. In Mark's context, they would have known what that meant. If you were Jewish in reading this, your minds would have gone to Isaiah and to um, Malachi and, 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 the, and the prophecies of, of the one that was going to come and cry out in the wilderness. But when you talk about preparing the way, the Roman reader, which is Mark's audience, they would have thought, oh, prepare a way. That must mean a king is coming. must mean that the king is going to be coming through your village or through your town. And where maybe the roads at this point are windy that get to your town. If the king is coming, you've got to prepare a way. Which means there will be advanced work that is done to build a highway for the king that is straight. No matter what obstacle it is that you may have to go through. John's going to use, or Mark's going to use this word way over and over. Sometimes it's road, sometimes it's path, sometimes it's journey. Sixteen times throughout these 16 chapters, he'll use it. And after this, after the one and two, uh, the, the reference in, in chapter, uh, or chapter one, verse two, about preparing the way, after this, it's always going to speak about the journey to the cross. The way of Jesus is straight to the cross. And then John the baptizer announcing the arrival of the king. Now, I want you to notice something. If you've got your Bibles, look in verse 10. It says this, And when he came out of the water, speaking of Jesus' baptism, he goes to, to be baptized by John the baptizer, not as a, uh, a cleansing from sin, but as an identification with you and I. Whereas we're baptized as a symbol now, in the church, as, as believers, we're baptized. This, this symbolizes we have, we have been cleansed from our sin. We have been raised from the dead. We are raised to new life. Jesus reverses that at the very beginning. His baptism is one in identifying with us. Our baptism is identifying with Jesus. Jesus' baptism is identifying with us. The symbolism of that all that you are, I am taking on to myself. This is what Jesus is doing. But notice in verse 10, and when he came out of the water, then you have the word immediately. He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Immediately. Immediately. As soon as. Mark will use this term 41 times in his gospel. It's only used 11 other times in all the New Testament. Immediately, immediately, immediately. There is an urgency in Mark's writing. Because there is an urgency in Jesus' ministry. He has come for a singular purpose. To save men and women from their sins. And so Mark's gospel, it moves rapidly 
through the events of Jesus' life. Well, if you'll skip down to verse 17, let's look at what it is that Jesus came to do. That's who Jesus is. What did Jesus come to do? Well, uh, I guess starting in, in verse uh, 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the, uh, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he finds James and, and, and John, his brother, the, the sons of Zebedee. They're mending their boats. Immediately he calls them and they leave their father Zebedee and they follow Jesus. It's the beginning of Jesus' early ministry. This is what Mark's giving us. The rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, first few verses of chapter 3. This is Jesus' beginning ministry there in Galilee. He's going to call his disciples. He's going to preach that the kingdom has come. People will clamor to hear him. And, and in the midst of preaching, in the midst of encountering people, Jesus is going to demonstrate tremendous power, power to heal. Power in miracles, divine miracles. And in a very short time in Mark's gospel, what you find is that Jesus' reputation begins to grow as people are hearing about this man. But Jesus didn't come for you to be astounded. Jesus didn't come for you to be astonished. He didn't come for you to have goosebumps. He didn't come to cause in you a sensational emotional response. He came to save you from your sins. And what you find about how Jesus is initially received and what Jesus came to do, those things are different. People came to see him because they were enamored, they were wowed, they were astonished. Jesus wanted them to know, I've come for something far greater than you can possibly imagine. And here we see in verse 17 where Jesus calls these disciples. He does not call them to sensation. He calls them to transformation. Follow me. I will make you. I'll make you become. This is transformation language. You follow me. I'm going to change you. You follow me, you will become what I always, from eternity past, designed for you to be. Forty-six times we'll encounter the disciples in Mark's gospel. Thirty-eight times we'll encounter the crowds around. Over twenty times people's going to, Jesus is going to call people to himself. Always with the invitation to follow. Twenty times, he is going to be alone with these disciples in these 16 chapters. 
And while we see the crowd respond, it's always in amazement and astonishment. It is not in devotion. The crowd struggle with belief. So do the disciples. They're all wanting Jesus to be who they want him to be. But the proclamation of the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to fulfill the message we find in verses 14 and 15, we read them right at the end in our reading. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. That's the message. Here's the response. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent simply means this. It means to turn from one direction to another. In this case, for, for them and in, in, in Mark's gospel, it's, it's to turn away from one object of faith. Those things that you're trusting on, those things you're counting on, those things you're pursuing, it, it, the things that you've put the trust, the weight of your life on, that if only I had this then, if only I had this, then everything would fall into place, whatever this is. It's to turn from that and to believe Jesus. One writer put it this way, faith, believe. Faith is, is the word that describes the direction of our, that our feet start moving when we find we are truly loved. It's a change of allegiance. The seat of power in your life changes. The primary influence of your heart changes. It's to turn and to follow Jesus. Mark's gospel presents a high call. A call to follow him. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you become. He'll transform you. Well, how are we to respond to that? See, often I think we hear that to follow me, the call to discipleship. And man, we get out our pens and we've got our paper and we're ready to make our list. You just tell me what a disciple is and what a disciple is supposed to do and I'm ready to do it. Read through the Bible in a year? Great. I'm 16 days in and haven't missed a reading. Well, that's not exactly true. I missed Thursday morning. But I read twice on Friday, so I'm still good. Change what music I listen to? I guess I can do that. Just listen to it really low. I'll stop saying bad words. I'll stop doing this and I'll start doing that. And we begin to think of discipleship as this grand list of things to do so that our lives are improved, that we become better versions of ourselves. And I want to tell you that if you hear that over the next 15 weeks, then I've done it wrong. 
that, that we haven't been faithful to Mark's gospel. Listen, the call is high. I don't want to minimize that. The call, the call is so high. It's a, it's a call that ought to feel crushing to you. Follow Jesus wherever he leads. And I realize that as I read this and as the disciples, it's dawning on them chapter after chapter after chapter that Jesus isn't leading me to the satisfaction of all my desires and all my wants and all my dreams. He's leading me on a road that inevitably leads to suffering and persecution and hardship and even death maybe. That he is not leading me into the heart of the pleasures of this world. He is leading me into a life being prepared for eternity with him. And that for me to follow that road, I have to believe that I have to have faith that Jesus is who he says he is and that he has done what he said he has done. And that the greatest endeavor of my life would be to follow step after step to wherever he leads, no matter the cost. That, that's discipleship. And the call is a crushing call. It's a call the disciples wrestle with the whole gospel, and I can't wait to show you how they stub their toe and they get it wrong and they, they find themselves so confused, and yet Jesus, in all of his love and his grace and his compassion, continues to pick them up and bring them along. So how are we to respond? if it's not about all the things that we're supposed to do. Let me show you. I think Mark ends ends chapter 1 with a picture of how we're to respond. And actually what it turns out is Matthew takes his cue from Mark and so does Luke. And they place the leper right at the beginning of the story. As a, as a picture of what this means. Look with me in verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity or compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once or immediately and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer yourself, uh, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But, but when he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter.
He helps us here, Mark does, with how to respond. See, the lot, the, the life of a leper is summed up from the law in Leviticus chapter 13. It says, the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. Let his hair be unkempt. Cover the lower parts of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. That was the effect of leprosy. You, you couldn't go anywhere without a mask and always had to social distance. You, you had to dress in such a way that it identified you as what you were. You are a leper. Can you imagine the humiliation, the isolation, ostracized from community? If you're married, that's over. If you have children, you've said goodbye. Your life became more like an animal's than it did a human being. In fact, by the time the rabbis show up in history and you open up the New Testament, they, they had gotten, uh, they'd gotten crazy with all the rules. If a leper walked by your house and stuck his head inside the house, the house was considered unclean. According to the rabbis, it was illegal to even greet a leper. They had to remain a hundred feet away if they were upwind. Josephus, the famous historian, he, he summarized what their life was like. He said, it's as if they were, in effect, dead men. All the way through Scripture, leprosy is never healed or cured. That the person uh, is always said to have, have been cleansed, but, but not healed, not, not, not cured, and, and, and only in a couple of instances. Does it appear there's any hope for someone with leprosy? In fact, by about this time, all the ancient cultures, they regarded leprosy as God's affliction for sin. Because it was an affliction by God, it can't be healed. And many people believe that the lepers, they deserved the disease because they, you know, they'd sinned in such a way that God's wrath had come upon them. And so you can imagine that when you're reading this as a first century reader and Mark, all of a sudden at the end, after he's announced who Jesus is and what Jesus does and all of his power and all of his authority, that all of a sudden a leper shows up on the page. Because it was the dreaded disease. And here Jesus comes face to face with a leper. So I think what Mark's telling us is the spiritual reality is that all of us are spiritual lepers, if you will. 
It's, a, it's an image. It's what it's meant to teach us. But, but, but unlike the, the, the leper, here, here's the deal. The, the leper, he's always conscious. He, he knows. You can see the, the swords. You, you, you experience the, uh, the isolation. You, you know you are cut off from everything. But, but spiritual leprosy, the, the, the spiritual condition that infects all of us, the, the sin that has come into the world that we are born into, this sin that eats its way from the inside out. See, often we find ourselves unconscious or unwilling to concede how deeply infected we are, how sick we really are. In some ways, Mark's saying, listen, okay, he's talking about Jesus and all his authority and all his, his power. Hey, can you see your leprosy? Can you see that in light of who Jesus is, this is who you are? That at the end of the day, when we're confronted with Jesus, what ought to be, what ought to be on the tip of our tongue and just out of our mouth is unclean, unclean. And yet the leper believed that Jesus could cure him. He probably didn't even have a great theological understanding. He's just saying, listen, if Jesus can do that, if he has that authority, he has that power, if he can do those things for other people, he could do this for me. In some ways, I want you to know this is the picture of what repentance is. I, I no longer am going to try pursuing any of those things that I thought would make me well because I've truly discovered in the history of the world's discovered nothing makes me well. Nothing cures me from this sin. Nothing cures me from the leprosy. And sin, it has these couple of lies that it tells us. One is that It's not that bad. The other lie is equal and opposite, though. It says, it's so bad I'm beyond help. If you're willing. You find in verse 41, Jesus, not only is he willing, he's willing, he's able, he's intentional, and it comes with a divine touch. He does what no one would ever have done. Takes out his hand and touches the leper. And immediately Mark has answered the question, well, why did God become man? So that man would know the touch of God. Well, he describes the miracle in 42 and it is immediate that the leper's cured. It's sudden and it's complete. And then you have the bit where he says, hey, don't go tell anybody. And you think, well, what, what's going on? I thought the whole thing was follow me and all that stuff. But the reality is he knew this is sensational. The guy's going to go present himself. The leper is going to enter back into the community. Of course, this guy can't possibly not tell everybody what has been going on. But Jesus says, just don't tell. Because if you tell, everybody's going to come here. Everybody's going to come and see me. Because they're going to want to see all the sensational things. I didn't come for the sensational things. 
I came for the eternal things. And what happens is the man goes back, he begins to tell, so many people come, Jesus has to leave the area, he can't be around there anymore. And that's okay. But the amazing thing is, is the reversal at the end of the story. The leper who's been ostracized and lived out in the wilderness and lived apart from people and couldn't be around anybody and had to yell unclean, finds himself being healed and cured and touched by Jesus, entered back into the community, reconnected with his life, and people are all around, and it's Jesus who now at the end of the story is the one that's ostracized and has to flee. And Mark's given us a picture of what did Jesus come to do? He came to take your place. He came to take what you are onto himself so that you can become what he is. It's the substitution of atonement that's going to be all through Mark's gospel and the purpose of Jesus' ministry to save you from your sin. Will you believe? And if you believe, are you following him? It begins with the repentance part, which is simply saying, you know what, I've got a sin problem. As one writer put it, if sin were blue, I'm blue all over. If you're in pain, do you know only healing comes from God? If all the good things in your life have been burned up by sin, that it's only restored through a relationship with the living God. If you fear grief and tragedy and death, the hope of forever, the resurrection is only found in a relationship with God. If there is shame that you have never been able to scrub off in your life, Would you come and believe relief and cleansing from that comes from the living God? Our response is that of the lepers. If you will, you can make me clean. And to hear Jesus say, I will. And to know the divine and intimate and supernatural touch of a Savior. Have you done that. Listen, I want to tell you about Mark's gospel, and I would be unfair. This next 15 weeks is not going to be you coming in here and then you leaving with, man, I know. I know exactly how to live my best life now. It's going to be you coming in here over and over and over again, and you're going to be hearing Jesus' call, which is a call that is impossible for you to manage, and yet he says, come to me. And we will work with and wrestle with the crowds and the disciples as they continue to misunderstand that. And we will expose, I hope, in 15 weeks as many of our misunderstandings, as many of our misconceptions about what it means to follow Jesus as we can so that we here in 2022, we'd know what discipleship means. 
It's not a list, it's a relationship. It's not things to do, it's a person to follow. And that we would experience what it means that our lives are transformed by following Him. So I invite you on the journey, on the way, on the path, on the road of Mark's gospel. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I ask that you do this in us. Only you can. We're here this morning and our, our, our very presence this morning is in some ways a confession that says we want to follow. We want to be on this way. Father, we want to be disciples following wherever it is that Jesus leads. And so I pray we would grow. I pray that we would grow spiritually over this next 15 weeks. That as we look at every chapter in Mark's gospel, that you would lead us through the inventory of what are the things we still hang on to and what are the things we need to let go. What are the things we pursue in our life that are out of sync with what it means to follow Jesus? Father, what what it would look like that we would become a servant to all. Father, we ask that you do that and that you would bring many that would desire to know that journey. So we ask this as you have instructed us to ask in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.